Yeah, so good evening. Um, my name's Larry Locke. It's good to see everyone tonight. Um, if we haven't met, that's okay. I teach business over at UMHB. So we're here tonight to celebrate uh, the Diasinarum, the Day of Ashes. It marks the beginning of the season of Lent, right? Uh, uh, this 40 days leading up to Easter. And I think this is one of the moments when we can really feel the breath of being part of the global church, right? We're joining millions of churches, well, millions of Christians at least, um, all over the world who are gathering together today over this 24-hour period, you know, depending where you are on the globe. Certainly millions of Christians will celebrate uh, this day. They'll do it in dozens of languages and all different kinds of church buildings and private homes and some grand cathedrals, right? And probably some... Uh, you know, some open fields, probably some caves um, somewhere where they'll be celebrating. And today we'll all be hearing a two-part message. Remember that you're dust, and to dust you will return, and repent and believe the gospel. That's sort of the two-part message of Ash Wednesday. We haven't always celebrated Ash Wednesday. It's not in the Bible, like Passover and, and Hanukkah. But we've been doing this a long time. There's some early church documents uh, that date from the 8th century that describe Ash Wednesday services. And even then, they refer to it as an ancient practice. This long-standing tradition of the church is to read certain scriptures, one of which you heard earlier, Psalm 51. And in the Catholic tradition, you would take some leftover palm fronds from the previous Palm Sunday, you know, the ones that your children would have waved 46 weeks ago, and they take those, burn them down into ashes, and those are the ashes that they use to, um, to put on your forehead. The traditional scriptures uh, would also include Genesis 3 and Mark 1, uh, and I think those are the ones that we're going to focus on tonight. So let's read the first one of those together. It's just Genesis 3, 17 to 19. This text is part of God's reaction to the fall, right? You remember in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the heaven and the earth and and you and me. And then in Genesis 3, the man and the woman listen to the snake instead of God. And they eat the one forbidden fruit. And so God has to track them down in the garden and has to explain to them the results um, that will happen as a result of their sin. And so that's where we're picking up the story in Genesis 3, starting in verse 17. But to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. In painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, but you will eat the grain of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. This uh, mention of dust in Genesis 3.19 is one of the very first uses of this word, ash or dust, in the Old Testament. And by the, by the way, our English word, uh, uh, ash, is actually an old Norse word. But the Hebrew word for ash or dust is the same word. It's usually the same. So when you read in your Bible, you know, in your English Bible in the Old Testament, and you see dust or ash, 
Um, then you should just know those are probably the same Hebrew word. There's no need for you to try to drill down and figure out some deep hidden meaning in the distinction between dust and ash. Right? It's, it's probably the same. But the term ash and dust has a lot of meaning in the Old Testament. You see it in Genesis 2-7, right? When God forms the man out of the, the dust of the earth and he breathes his life into, into the man. And you see this great contrast between the lifelessness of the dust and then the breath of God right, that's breathed into him that completely brings the man to life. And it's just great communication of how, of how that is sort of all our natures, right? We are all breath of heaven and stuff of earth. We are all that at the same time. And it communicates the power of God that he can use even the dust of the earth to fulfill his creative purpose. He can use anything. Right? And then we see dust again in Genesis 3.19. And it doesn't look as good as dust did in Genesis 2. Right? Dust never looks so good as it did in Genesis 2. Because in Genesis 3, it comes at us from a very different context. And this reference to dust or ash, which we just read, is part of the curse. Right? The man and the woman... I would, wanted to be the ones who would determine what was good and bad instead of letting God have that job. And so they broke the one rule. They literally had one rule, right? And they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with that act of self-aggrandizement, the entire world changes. The snake gets cursed. The woman gets cursed. The man gets cursed. The ground gets cursed. And at the end of all those curses is this reminder, from the dust you came... And to the dust you will return. Now from this point forward in the Old Testament, dust is not associated with creation anymore. It's not associated with new births or beginnings. It's always associated with sin and death and sorrow. And there are a number of references in the Old Testament of people putting on ash and dust on themselves, covering themselves with ash and dust, and it's always something bad. You check them out. It always is. You never hear someone say, hey, we won the battle. Let's put ash on our clothes. Right? You never get, God has delivered us from our diseases and from our famine. Let's put ash on our heads. Right? It's a new baby. Mazel tov. Break out the ashes. It's never like that. It's always the opposite. When Esther's uncle Mordecai learns that there's this plot not just to kill him, but to kill all the Jews in the entire Persian Empire. He breaks out the ashes. When the king of Nineveh hears Jonah prophesy that the whole city is going to be destroyed, he orders everybody, put on the ashes. When Job loses everything, everything that he's got and is deathly ill, he sits in a pile of ashes and he cries out to God while he's arguing with his not-so-helpful friends. Ashes are this symbol in the Old Testament of desperation. They're a symbol of loss and death and hopelessness. And that may be part of the way that we're using them today. But to know that, you have to ask yourself, is there any ash in your life? Is there anything desperate? Is there anything that's dying? Do you have loss or sin or sorrow or sickness in your life. I rather suspect you do because that's the human condition. 
My wife, Lisa, and I share a cup of tea every morning before we get up and take on the day. We each actually get our own cup. We share the experience of drinking a cup of tea. Please don't send Larry an extra cup, right? But we usually pray before we get going, and we regularly thank the Lord for the amazing life that he's given us. We thank him that we get to wake up in our own house, in our own warm bed, and that all our children are gainfully employed or in school or both, and that our grandchildren are all healthy and beautiful and brilliant and amazing and oh so much better than everybody else's grandchildren. (laughs) And we just thank him for the awesome life that we have together. But that doesn't mean there's no ash, right? My mom passed away a couple of years ago and my father now lives by himself in a little retirement sort of a facility in another state. I visit him a couple of times a year, but he remembers less of me and less of our family every time. He now generally confuses me for his brother who also happens to be named Larry. And I'm sad to say that we were never friends and now that door has closed. My wife and I have avoided major illness this year but all around us, it seems like our students and our colleagues and our, our friends are just getting hammered. My wife has these alarms set on her phone at various times throughout the day to remind her to pray for this one who has cancer and that one who prematurely delivered a two-pound baby, and it sort of goes on and on from there. And it seems like her phone is going off all day, right? We got plenty of ash around us. So what's your ash? What relationships do you have that are dying? What sin do you have that's overpowered you and that you've just failed to master? What is your illness, your loss? What death, what poverty, what pain is dominating your life? You got ashes. I know you do. And you can feel horrible about the ash in your life, but you mustn't feel lonely because ash is a worldwide phenomenon. I'm teaching a class remotely at a Christian college in Lithuania in Eastern Europe this semester. And every single student comes from a country on the brink of disaster. The Belarusians have found themselves, you know, being run by this vindictive totalitarian. The Cossacks have Russian troops keeping the peace uh, in their country and keeping the elected officials in power. I have Ukrainian students who haven't heard from their families in days. And I think every single one of them is afraid to go home and they're terrified for their families. The world has plenty of ash. It's everywhere. And when we have it put on our foreheads today, part of what we're doing is acknowledging our ash to God and to the world. Hey, everybody, I have sin in my life. I have lost things and destroyed things, and suffered things. You may be really well-dressed today, and well-fed, and, and you may be, you know, fully employed, or on top of your class, or, 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 you know, you may be sort of living your best life now, but you've got ashes. You may be here with your campus crush, or your small group of BFFs, or your soulmate, or your loving family, but you've got ash, my friend. And tonight, I invite you to own it and to wear it. That is why the church's ancient tradition is to place ash on our foreheads and the person placing them on us says, you're dust. 
and to dust you will return. But this confession of our sin and our sorrow is only half the story. We wear the ash on our heads, but we wear it in a particular way and with a particular trajectory. You see, many times in those Old Testament stories uh, in which God's people put on ashes and confessed their sin and, and cried out for help, he came to their rescue. Not only was Mordecai spared of the plot against him, but all the Jews in all of Persia were saved. The king of Nineveh calls on his entire empire to repent in ashes, and much to Jonah's displeasure, they are all saved. They're all spared from destruction. Job's misfortunes are completely restored to him after the Lord grants him new wisdom about who needs who in their relationship. In many of the Old Testament stories, when we see the Lord's people put on ash, we see powerful deliverance come to those people. But Christian, wait. Do you know the most powerful example in Scripture of the Lord coming to rescue his people? You learned about it in Sunday school. It wasn't the parting of the Red Sea. It wasn't the Battle of Jericho. It wasn't David and Goliath. It's the coming of Christ. When Jesus comes, he comes to bring us up out of the dust. He comes to deliver us from the ashes in our lives. When Jesus comes, he actually reverses the symbol of ashes and dust. He reverses the curse in so many ways, yes? When Jesus came, he took that same dust and turned it into a symbol of healing and joy. But not the dust by itself. Just as Yahweh formed the man from the dust and then breathed his own breath to bring it life, Jesus is going to use that same dust and mix in his own spit and heal a man who was born blind. You can read about it in John chapter 9. Jesus wants to engage your dust in that same way. You got sin, he wants to hear your confession so that he can forgive you and take your punishment for it. You got sorrow, he wants to take that sorrow and cry with you, just like he did with Lazarus' family in John 11. And he wants to give you comfort that only he can give. You got pain. He wants to share your pain with you. There are a lot of kinds of pain in the world, but one with which I'm particularly familiar is physical pain. A few years ago, I was being treated for intestinal cancer, and I had to go in for this procedure for which I had to be you know, anesthetized. So they put me out on the operating table, gave me an IV, told me to count backwards from 100. I don't know why they always do that. I never get past 95, right? They could have just told me to count back from five, but they always say 100. I don't know why. But when I woke up from that procedure, I immediately could tell that I couldn't feel a couple of my fingers, and my neck really hurt. Right? Like, understand, I'm still halfway on knock-you-unconscious drugs, but I can feel like someone is trying to turn my head backwards. I actually went home, but the pain was so bad, I went back to the emergency room. Now, I'm in the middle of chemotherapy, which can cause a lot of pain, but it was nothing compared to what was going on in my neck. And the ER doctor says, eh, all I can do is, you know, give me some painkillers. Look, I've got an oncologist. I mean, I've got access to narcotics that, that you know, even drug dealers don't have, right? <laughs> I've got serious narcotics with me, but they're not helping. He sent me to a, a spinal surgeon, but he told me he couldn't operate on me as long as I was 
on chemo, and he told me, you now have a bulging disc in your neck, and it is inflamed. But maybe it will recede over time. Not encouraging. So I went home, and I sat, sat down sideways on the couch and attempted to sort of rest my head against the back of the couch while sitting straight up, and I cried to Jesus. I didn't cry to the good shepherd of the flock. I didn't cry to the baby in the manger. I'm crying out to Jesus on the cross. And I tell him, Lord, I know you're carrying all my sin up there, right? And that you're there to ensure my healing and my wholeness. And I know you're in horrific pain, dying. But if you're willing to take it, I'll give you my pain too. And I've never felt so ashamed in my life. I never felt less like a man. That pain unmanned me to the point that I was willing to give a man being tortured to death my pain too. But in my poor heart, Jesus told me, that is why I am here. I'll share your pain. And my neck kept hurting. But Jesus and I hurt together that day. And I knew I was going to be all right. Because there was no place so dark, no place so desperate, no place so painful that Jesus wouldn't meet me there. And I understand pain now in a way that I didn't understand it before. And I understand people who are in pain in a way that I didn't understand them before. And the Lord took my ash that day and he made something beautiful. Jesus came to claim your ashes. If you've been going to church anywhere for very long, you've heard that, oh, he came to claim you as his own. He came to adopt you into his family. He came to to promote you into his service. He came to give you abundant life. He came to save you from your sins. You can now add to that. He came to claim your ashes. And when we put them on our foreheads, he wears them with us. That sorrow that you're carrying, he wants to walk in that sorrow with you and release you from that burden. That loss that you experience, he wants to fill you and fill up that loss with his comfort and his joy. That sin that you committed that you're so ashamed of that isolates you from everyone, he wants to take that. That's his sin now. And he wants to pay the price for you. He didn't come to claim the perfect you that you hope to be one day. He came to claim every sin that is separating you from the Father. That's why the ancient tradition of putting ashes on today, the person putting them on puts them in the shape of the cross and as well as saying, remember you are dust and to dust you return, he will say the first words recorded, the first sermon of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, he will say repent and believe the gospel. God wants to save us. He wants to give you abundant life, a life of joy instead of ashes. But he won't save the perfect picture of you, right, that you show your friends. He doesn't want to save the Facebook you and the Instagram you, right, who's always posing with smiling, beautiful people at expensive parties. My friend Jim has a a green screen that's literally attached to the back of his chair, right? So when when he's on the screen, which seems to be how we do all our meetings now, 
um, when he's doing those, he can have whatever background he wants on, you know, for the back of his chair. And sometimes he's on his sort of London cityscape and sometimes he's, you know, in, in Machu Picchu in the Peruvian Andes. Sometimes he's right in the middle of the Champs-Élysées in Paris. He's right in front of the, the Arc de Triomphe. And the weather's always perfect, right? He just does it for fun because, you know, he, he knows that we know he's really not there. Uh, I know he's not there because that picture of Machu Picchu was taken by a drone several hundred meters in the air. He's not there. And I've been to that spot on the Champs-Élysées. It's a very busy street. He would be run over if he was trying to be there. But in real life, we want to pretend that our lives don't contain any ash, don't we? That we have this idealized lifestyle of nonstop fun and excitement. We don't need a savior. We don't need any sin or suffering. That is a very harmful trend among us. A very harmful trend. It blocks our access to the people who might help us. I've had many experiences where I only found out that someone was struggling after it was too late to help. I don't think I'm the only one. Anybody else sort of have that experience where you found out someone was struggling, but it was too late by the time you found out about it? I had a student come to my office a couple of years ago, two weeks before the end of the semester, and he came to tell me that he wanted to withdraw from all his classes. And I asked him, you know, what's up with that? Are you failing your classes? No, I mean, he wasn't doing as well as he thought he might, but he wasn't failing any of his classes. I reminded him that it was way too late to get any of his money back, and he acknowledged that. He said, yeah, no, I'm I'm okay with that. And I asked him, you know, can you just hang on a couple of weeks, right, till the end of the term, you can at least capture all this college credit that you've been investing all this time and treasure in instead of losing the whole thing. And he said, no, I'm withdrawing from the university today. Because this afternoon, I'm checking myself into a mental hospital. Because my other option is to kill myself. And I had no idea. I hadn't seen any evidence that he was in such deep water. I hadn't seen any evidence because he hadn't left any. When we don't acknowledge the ash in our own lives, the people that the Lord raised up to help us are powerless But when we wear the evidence of our ash, when we live transparently in front of the people around us, then those that God has invited to place around us, right? Those people are there to pour out mercy on us. Another bad effect of our unwillingness to acknowledge the ash that we have in our lives is it encourages other people to do the same, right? When you see your, your friend's Instagram post, you know, when they see their, your post, right, all dressed up at, the, at a big party or announcing your promotion or this picture of your perfect children having a lovely beach day at some private beach in the Bahamas, when your friends see that post, they're not going to post a picture of their dirty kitchen, right, or a picture of that dent in their fender that they got making a hole in the wall of their garage. Right? They're not going to do that. And when we refuse to tell people the truth about our suffering... They won't tell us theirs either. And at that point, we become complicit in their destruction. We share the responsibility for their languishing and suffering because we refused to create a safe place for them to bring their pain. It's as if we built this amazing, huge church building that all kinds of people could come in and receive help and then never unlock the door. What a tragic thing we do 
to suffering people when we refuse to wear our ash. Of course, the worst thing that we do is we cut ourselves off from from the help of God when we refuse to acknowledge the ash in our lives, right? 1 Peter 1, verse 5, Peter reminds us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God will not rise up to defend the Instagram you, right? He won't save that you. He only wants to save the real you, the one that's covered in ashes. You either bring that person to God or don't bother coming. He only gives grace to the humble. And don't overlook the first part of that verse as well, right? God opposes the proud. You could interpret it to mean God don't like the Instagram you. Um, and that, that may be true. God may not like the Instagram you. But it's actually much bigger than that because that word oppose um, uh, is a military term. It means to array itself in battle. It means to prepare um, for an offensive battle, for a military assault. Not only does God not like the proud you, God is arrayed in battle to oppose that you. Don't expect to be very successful. God doesn't lose battles. You should know that before you invite him to oppose you. I can personally testify to the reliability of this verse. I've invited God to oppose me many times. I lost every one of those battles. So we're here tonight to acknowledge the ash in our lives and then to turn it over to Jesus. We're here to repent of our sin and offer him our guilt and our shame. We're here to report to God the suffering that we're feeling, the pain that we're experiencing, and to ask him to share it with us. We're here to ask him to redeem all of our brokenness, all the ash that's in our lives, and to turn it into something beautiful, right? Is that possible? Does that sound like crazy talk? Right? Turn my cancer into something beautiful. Turn your broken marriage into something beautiful. Your financial ruin, your addiction, your failure into something beautiful. Yeah, it's crazy talk. And it's the gospel. Jesus took that dirt of the ground in John chapter 9. Right? And he spits in it. And he uses it to make a man who had been born blind back to the Garden of Eden. He used that dust, not for a curse, but to create sight in a man who had never had it. He uses that dust to create ex nihilo, the same way he created the stars and the mountains. And and you and me, he uses that same dust to perform an act of creation, right? God does that. The curse is broken. Jesus can take the ashes in your life and perform an act of creation with it. I've seen that. Let me tell you about my friend Skip. He was a parishioner of mine when I pastored a church in New England. Skip had been a drug addict for decades when I met him, uh, and he didn't have long to live. He was terribly skinny. He wore an oxygen mask and carried an oxygen tank with him everywhere he went. He was maybe 40 years old. But his hair was gray. His skin was gray. Right? My son was scared of him because of how he looked. He'd been on methadone for about 10 years when I first met him. But he came to our church. And he and I started to have breakfast together about once a week. And the Lord did something for him. And the Lord healed his body. He gained weight. Right? His hair grew out blonde. He went to the gym. Right? He actually got pretty strong. I mean, he still had many ill effects from his years of addiction. His 
His hands were like claws, right, from where he'd shattered his forearms. He, uh, he couldn't work, right? But as I was about to resign from that church, he told me that the one thing he had always hoped he might someday do was to be able to pass on his testimony to, um, to young people, right, to encourage them to find the Lord in their early years instead of finding heroin like he did, right? And I invited him to come and speak at our school. Our church had a little school. To come and speak at our school chapel. But that was sort of way too intimidating for him. He was way too shy to do that. But when he found out that I was resigning. And that I would be leaving that church. He, he agreed to come. He wanted to come. And I told him. We'd just bring two stools. And we'd sit them down in front of the assembly. And I would just ask him questions. And he could answer them. And we would just talk. right? Just like we did at breakfast. We would just, we would just talk together. And so he came and he sat there, and I just asked him some questions. And oh my gosh, it was amazing, right? I mean, the students hung on every word that he said, and this truth of God that had been sort of piling up all his life, just sort of pouring out of him. He was the poster child for don't do drugs, right? If you sort of look at him, right? But he, he had this amazing ministry, and the students gave him a standing ovation. That never happened. I mean, these are high school students. How jaded are they going to be? The students gave him a standing ovation, right? The Lord took his ashes years in the making, and they made something beautiful. He died not long after that. His addiction did not kill him. He actually was walking his dogs uh, out in the snow, and he fell. And he wound up being out there for a long time and contracted pneumonia. He died young, but he died clean, right? He was clean of his addiction. And he died free in the Lord. And he died in beauty. He died having ministered the gospel. And who knows how many kids he spared, right? In that one act of courage, come and tell his own story. So I want to encourage you tonight. Walk in the truth. Confess the ashes in your life. Repent of your sin. Believe the gospel. Jesus saves. If you've never repented before, it's not complicated. I can break it down for you in five simple steps. It may not be easy, but it's simple. You get me? So five simple steps if you've never done it before. We tell God what we did. You know what you did, right? You know what you thought, you know what you said, or what you wanted to say. We tell him we're sorry. It was God's law that you broke. You owe him. We ask him to forgive us. He promises he will. He doesn't have to, but he promises he will. And then we ask him to cleanse us. This is the mystery part that only God can do. It's like David was saying in, in Psalm 51, right? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. Within me, this is where we ask God to take our ashes and make something beautiful. And then we ask Him to teach us how to walk in a new way. You weren't committing that sin because you knew it would make you miserable, right? You did it because somehow it was useful to you, it met some need in your life. And we ask God to show us how He wants to meet that need, right? According to His riches in Christ. So, this is the time when we trade our ashes for beauty. Um, I'm just going to lead us in prayer. I hope that you'll join me. I am so ready to make that trade. I hope you are as well. Holy Father, you are good, and everything you do is good. 
We're coming to you a people of dust. We are born in it, made of it, and covered by it. Lord, please comfort the hurting ones, heal the sick ones, encourage the discouraged ones. Just form, reform the broken ones. And Lord, please forgive all of us. We have all sinned and gone astray. This is the time when you confess. Here's what I did, God. Here's what I did. And I was wrong. I'm sorry, Lord. I know I was violating your law. I knew it. And I did it anyway. Please, God, forgive me. I plead the blood of Christ who paid for my sin. In his name, I ask your forgiveness. And now, Lord, please cleanse us. We accept your peace and your comfort. We accept clean hearts and a steadfast spirit in exchange for the broken ones that we've got. And finally, Lord, please lead us. Please lead us away from the things that tempt us and show us how to walk in the way of life. Please show us how you can supply all our needs according to your riches in Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and grant you peace.